Welcome back to Curious Combinations, and everything's an original podcast. I'm AF Tanef, and today I'm covering Stranger Things Season 4, Episode 4. Now, I could just jump right to the end of this episode and vomit my feelings everywhere without having to wait. Alas, I'm going to have to be patient. While that Max segment might be one of my new favorite things ever, there's a lot of things that happen before that, and I definitely don't want to miss anything. So let's get into this recap right away. Our episode title is Dear Billy, and between you and me, I was very frightened that Billy was going to somehow come back to life in some capacity. Fortunately for me, and unfortunately for Max, Billy now only appears to exist as a specter. He's a figment of Max's imagination, a lingering trauma in her mind, a damning point of gravity around which all of her guilt and shame and fear and self-loathing and yes, even suicidal ideation rotate. All this to say that I am glad Billy's gone, but Max is in mourning for the stepbrother she could have hypothetically had someday instead of the racist, violent, psychopathic monster that she got. But first, our episode opens in California. Jonathan, Will, and Mike have been left behind, but not forgotten. The woman from the previous episode, the one who showed up with Dr. Owens, she's trying to explain the situation to them, but they're not having it. They don't like being told that the people in Hawkins are in danger, and they certainly don't like being told that they can't do anything about it. But as far as Dr. Owens' cohorts are concerned, all Jonathan, Will, and Mike should do for the rest of this season is sit tight in California and wait for the plot to resolve itself. Three guesses whether or not they do. Eleven, though, did leave Mike with a final word. She wrote him a little letter very purposefully signed from instead of love. In it, she says that she's gone to become a superhero again, and one has to wonder if Mike knows that he might be just a tiny bit to blame for this. Eleven surely still would have gone, even if he hadn't accidentally poked that particular bruise of hers, but he did poke it nonetheless. At the school, it's a relief to find that things are not too late for Max. This first hallucination of hers was not, thankfully, her one and only. Robin and Nancy rush in to join Dustin and Steve as they discuss what Max experienced, and Max explains to them what she thinks it means. The horrible fate that befell Chrissy and Fred in the previous episodes? Max is suffering the same initial symptoms, and based off the suspected timeline, that means she's got about 24 hours left to live. But before they can reflect upon this awful possibility, someone else enters the school. Steve prepares himself for a brawl, but thankfully it's no one dangerous. Lucas apparently biked all the way here and is almost too out of breath to explain the situation. But he powers through, letting the rest of them know that there's a mob on primarily Eddie's but also Dustin's ass. And then Dustin breaks the even worse news, the Max news, to Lucas. Here we reach our credits and episode title, and then we're at the Sinclair house, where Erica, who is far too old to convincingly play an 11-year-old, is painting a figurine when the doorbell rings. Surprise, surprise, it's our local basketball lunatic. Captain Cardboard over here has decided to try interrogating a, let me remind you, 11-year-old girl, and though Erica's gay jokes aren't phenomenal, it's lovely that she already knows how to handle Jason's awful ass even at her young age. She doesn't, unfortunately, know enough to not accidentally confirm for the basketballers that Lucas is some kind of traitor to their cause. Honestly, the less we see of these hateful idiots, the more pleased I will be. I hope we tie up the knot of this plot thread sooner rather than later. Please don't let it still be hanging by the time we hit the end of this first chunk of the season. Back with the Hawkins gang, the boys are discussing how to possibly beat Vecna's curse. Victor Creel, as far as they know, is the only survivor, and Steve, darling angel that he is, has gotten on the same page as me in regards to the whole, this is a retcon, right, 
thing in regards to Vecna being around in the 50s. And this is obviously the show's attempt at clarification. Dustin takes a minute to remind the audience that Elle didn't create the Upside Down, she only created a portal to it. It doesn't clarify how the hell Vecna manages to penetrate the veil, so to speak, before Elle came along, though. But it does, at least, grant me a certain sense of confidence that the writers are thinking of the implications of their plot here. That's a large relief to me. As for Max, she is busy writing her little heart out. It's a series of letters, letters to everyone really, from Lucas to Dustin to Steve to Robin to her distant mom and absent father and even her dead stepbrother. But before she can show these letters to the gang and deliver them to their rightful recipients, Robin and Nancy announce that they have a plan. They're going to pretend to be Ruth and Rose, students investigating Penhurst. They're going to try to get an audience with Victor Creel, and Steve is not invited. He tries to worm his way into going with them, but Nancy is firm. He's staying with the kids, and Robin is coming with her, because she knows how to dress Robin up to look girly and presentable. And Robin is not excited about that. Elsewhere, in Alaska, Joyce is trying and failing to get into contact with her kids, and Murray is tense as all hell in the build-up to their meeting with Yuri. And again, I love these two together. I love that Murray readily apologizes when he steps out of line. I want them to be happy, and I honestly don't even care if they get Hopper back. If he's going to swoop in and ruin my ship, as a matter of fact, he can just fucking stay in Russia. Speaking of Russia, Enzo is teasing Hopper over the chances of Hopper actually making it back to America. Given his personality, plus how much screen time he's been given, and that he actually survives the events of this episode, I would imagine that he is the Alexei of this season, so to speak. He is our pet Russian for the meantime, and I don't know if he's going to suffer the same ultimate fate as Alexei last season, but I do think he's going to be sticking around for a while. I'd be stunned if we don't see him again after this, and very much surprised if he doesn't play a large role in however Hopper actually makes it out. Because we all agree that he eventually will, right? Now, at the buyer's house, there are two government agents lounging around as lazy as can be, keeping a close eye on the boys' every movement and refusing to really let them do anything. Mike and Will are in Will's bedroom having a heart-to-heart, -heart, and it's a lovely moment of reconciliation between the two of them. I really want them to make up properly, because I see such lovely potential for the relationship between Mike and Eleven and Will, however it should ultimately manifest. The most obvious outcome, of course, is that Mike and Eleven re-solidified the romantic bond, Mike and Will become best friends again, and Will moves on from his obvious crush on Mike, and Will and Eleven cement themselves as really close brother and sister. But I'll take anything, if I'm being honest. I just love the potential of these three together, and they're all finally old enough, I think, that I might actually check out some fanfiction after this season is over. I've never read anything involving the younger kids before, because they're the younger kids, and you, and maybe I'm going to regret looking, depending on what's out there. That's definitely a possibility. But I think I'm going to give it a chance. Let me know if you guys know about anything good, and let me know if there are any tags in particular I should avoid to avoid the, uh, grosser stuff. Anyway, back to canon. Will is really solid and supportive in this scene, and this season is really making me love his character in a way that I haven't before. And then there's Jonathan, with a harebrained scheme to drive all the way to Hawkins. I made a joke about that earlier in the podcast coverage, or maybe in my reaction video for the last episode, but apparently they're actually going to do it. That genuinely is the reason that the writers introduced a friend with a van. They knew that the boys were going to need a ride. That's the whole point of Argyle. 
So, back in Hawkins, Max passes out her goodbye letters. Everyone tries to convince her that they're unnecessary, but I find this unkind. She really thinks that she's going to die, and this is a big emotional moment for her, and they need to suck it the fuck up and let her have this. And the emotional maturity that Max displays here is just really familiar to me. Speaking as someone who has a CPTSD diagnosis, I find Max extremely sympathetic and painfully accurate, and while it breaks my heart that she's going through this, I love the way she's being portrayed this season. I recognize so much of my own struggles in her, and while it's a bit unrealistic for her to be handling this so well at such an incredibly young age, I didn't even understand what was wrong with me yet at 14, let alone know how to properly cope with it, I really appreciate that she's being allowed to operate in this sticky psychological space without ultimately being reduced by it. I don't know where the rest of her story is going this season. Until the end of this episode, I wasn't even sure that she was going to survive. But based on where it's gone so far, this might turn out to be a new favorite character arc for me. So, elsewhere at Penhurst, Robin looks truly atrocious and the asylum director is creepy as all get out. Nancy tries to manipulate the guy, but she doesn't do a phenomenal job with her good girl act, so Robin lays into the guy with this feminist rant that absolutely would never have worked in reality. This old fart of a director would never actually find this shit sympathetic. Not sympathetic enough to break the rules, that's for sure. If anything, this outburst would push him the wrong way off the fence. This is happening in 1986, not 1996, not 2006, not 2016. Talking about the oppression you face as a woman gets you written off as radical and annoying or gods forbid a misandrist even now in 2022. In the 80s, the second you mentioned boobs or not being taken seriously because you have them, you guaranteed that you were not going to be taken seriously, period. There is a reason that historically it's misogynists like Margaret Thatcher who managed to find power within the patriarchy. There is a reason that so many women desperately pretend they're not like the other girls. Generally speaking, Speaking, no one gives a shit about women's struggles. Society does not give a fuck about the epidemic of intimate partner violence against women, hundreds of thousands of untested rape kits, and a microscopic rape conviction rate, or that women in America lack and are losing reproductive rights, among many, many other complaints. So, I find it incredibly hard to believe that this guy gets taken in by Robin's lies here. There is no way that this dude would actually give a fuck. Not a single fuck. Absolutely not at all. And it kind of bugs me that this is portrayed as a big girl power moment for Robin. Robin deserves a real moment of triumph. One that I could actually believe. Not this nonsense. But now we're on to the meeting with Yuri. He is awful and I hate him. His joke about Yuri being eaten by a bear is really dumb and I'm stunned that Joyce and Murray would believe it for a second and the split second this idiot offered them coffee, I knew that shit was drugged. Of course it was. Seriously. As always, my reaction videos are available to $5 patrons and you can go hear me say that shit. The split second I saw that, it came out of my mouth. You do not ever, ever in fiction, or reality, take liquids from a strange man, period, ever. Unless you cracked open the can yourself, you are risking being drugged. And then who knows what the fuck is going to happen to you? Me. I do, by the way. I know what's going to happen to you. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit, and it's not going to be fun. Trigger warnings. 
right up front. Meanwhile, in Russia, though, Hopper makes his break for it. It's kind of a clown show. He gets out, but almost everything that can go wrong does go wrong. Hop is shoeless, nearly hobbled, and forced to fistfight a guard. Then, when the guy finally fires his gun, it brings the rest of the pigs running. Hopper only survives thanks to some convenient dynamite. He blows the shed to smithereens and escapes just in time, but he doesn't take all the guards out. It's not even close. As he gets on a snowmobile and races toward the tree line, bullets fly after him, and somehow every single shot is a miss. The rest of the prisoners, plus Enzo, look on triumphant and impressed, but Hopper is not out of the woods yet. Back in Hawkins, the music is perfectly synchronized to Max and Lucas's relationship dynamic while they and Steve and Dustin roll up on Max's family trailer. And as Max goes to deliver her letters to her family, she finds to her surprise that her mom is home. I thought this was suspicious the moment I saw it, but I ultimately decided I was being paranoid. Sure, Max's mom has a very different personality here than I was expecting her to present, but Max didn't seem thrown by it, so obviously I was in the wrong. Except that I was right. What starts as a tough conversation between mother and daughter turns into a full-on nightmare as everything fades into darkness and Max realizes that she's actually hugging Vecna. Now, I want to talk here about Vecna and the way he speaks in these hallucinations. Maybe you can't clock this if you don't have mental health struggles of your own, but I don't in any way think that Vecna's dialogue here is actually coming from Vecna. I don't mean that he's not literally saying it. I mean that he's not coming up with the words. This shit... Everything out of his face in these hallucinations, it is all specifically designed to sound like the extreme negative self-talk that one experiences when they are beginning to circle the drain towards serious suicidal ideation. You deserve this. You ruined everything. You're stupid if you think you can make this okay. That's what it sounds like. That is what it sounds like in your head all the time once you get that far. And it doesn't stop without distraction. It never stops until you fall asleep or you lose yourself in your favorite Netflix show or you fill the silence with infinite podcasts or you blast your favorite song on repeat so loud that you can feel it in your bones. That's PTSD. That is trauma. That is suicidal depression. And bless this show for tackling it so well so far. Back at Penhurst, though, the depiction of mental illness and the mentally ill is a bit more cliche, let's generously call it. The director, whatever his name is, has a foreshadowy line about music helping, quote, broken minds and fuck you for that, my good sir. And then Robin and Nancy are almost in the clear. They almost get to be alone with Victor Creel without anyone realizing that they're not who they say they are. But Robin... She just can't keep her damn mouth shut. She slips up and she gets the name of her fake professor wrong, and that's all it takes for this guy to realize he's been had. And again, this dude is just creepy as fuck. I really don't know what the hell to make of this character, if I'm being honest, and I hope we don't have to see him again. Victor Creel, though, is more interesting. The guard's acting in this scene is terrible, but luckily he's only here for a moment. Instead, we're left with Nancy and Robin interrogating Freddy Krueger himself. Seriously, that's Robert Englund under the makeup there, and I find that a very fun little choice. Maybe not quite as fun as Sean Astin showing up in season two, but definitely a delight nonetheless. Now, before we hear Creel's story, though, we're back in California. It's time for another Will and Mike heart-to-heart, -heart, this one being the one wherein Mike reaches back out to Will, and Noah Schnapp does such an amazing job of communicating Will's vulnerability here with facial expressions alone, and Will even makes sure to grab his painting before he goes to leave, and I just want the world for this boy. I cannot believe how much I have slowly grown to love this character over the course of this series. I had no feelings about him at all until season two, and now I just adore him with my whole heart. But all is not well in California. 
The doorbell rings, heralding pizza, except it's not Argyle standing on the threshold. Instead, it is a gun-toting, murderous agent of some kind, and he blasts one of the boys to protectors away before anyone even realizes that anything is wrong. Thankfully, the surviving agent from Owen's team isn't as worthless as his attitude implied. The whole house is under siege, but he manages to hold everyone off in what appears to be a single frenzied oneer. And to my surprise, not only do the kids manage to make it out alive, so too does this agent, though he's certainly a bit worse for the wear. I'm not quite sure where he was shot, so I can't tell you how likely it is that he'll survive for long, but believe me when I say that I was shocked to see them helping him into Argyle's van. I definitely thought that dude was already gone. Back in Alaska, Yuri's corny ass has finally finished counting money. He's making jokes about Hopper being dead, but it's a ruse. He just wants to get out of the room so he can make a call to Russia. A call, in fact, to the warden of the prison where Hopper was held and Enzo expected to be able to keep working. While Hopper did succeed in his escape and even made it to the safe house where Yuri was supposed to pick him up, Yuri is no more than a money-grubbing scumbag, and he knows that there's more money in turning in Enzo, Hopper, Joyce, and Murray than there is in helping them. And I knew it. The second Enzo showed up on the screen again, I fucking knew it. If the plot were finished with Enzo, he wouldn't have been seen again. Being seen for this little scene gave the game away. Being on screen for this phone call made it very clear that he was about to be betrayed. And so, like I said, I think we're going to be seeing plenty more of him in the rest of the season, too. And I have to wonder if it's going to be some kind of a thing involving him sacrificing himself. Because everyone involved in this conspiracy is in extreme danger. Enzo is captured, Hopper is recaptured, and Joyce and Murray appear to both be drugged into unconsciousness by Yuri back in Alaska. Now, if Murray isn't faking, I'm going to be deeply disappointed by this. If anyone should be on the same wavelength as me in terms of don't drink anything offered by strange men, it should be Murray. If he actually drank that coffee, I've gotta say, I have lost some respect for him. Or perhaps I'll just chalk it up to out-of-character writing? But if there's anyone I'm really concerned about here, it's Joyce. Now, I want to preface what I'm about to say by noting a delineation between what I think is the logical fallout of this scene and what I think is going to be the actual fallout of this scene. I know that what I'm about to say is not actually going to be handled by the Stranger Things writers. It will likely not be addressed or even implied, because this story, at the end of the day, is Netflix's flagship, and that means it has to walk a very fine line of appeal. It can be dark, but it cannot be too dark. It must appeal to both adults and to teenagers, and sometimes even to children. It must be mature without being too mature. And the logical conclusion of Yuri drugging Joyce for the purpose of selling her to Russia is too dark, too adult, and too mature for Stranger Things to actually include. So, we're going to start this off by saying, trigger warning. We're going to be talking about something very upsetting for just a minute. And I will try to include some tags in the description so that you can skip this section if you would like. So, it is possible that what I'm going to say right now Maybe I'll have to eat my words. Perhaps they will address this. Perhaps they will purposefully avert it. Perhaps they will even include it as a confirmed or implied plot element. I doubt all of that. I really think they're just going to skip past it. And because I think that they're going to skip past it, I am going to address it myself. In this situation, there is a one in a million chance that Joyce would not be sexually assaulted. You can go ahead and miss me with that hashtag not all men why ever would you think you're capable of such a horrible thing bullshit. There is a pervasive trope in our media, an understanding that, as TV Tropes puts it, rape is a special kind of evil. In our culture's stories, there are villains and then there are rapists. 
In our stories, rape is worse than murder. In our stories, only the worst of the unimaginably worst could ever possibly rape someone. And that shit is just not true. Rape is mundane. Rape is common. Rape is incredibly normal. It's normalized. It's a fucking epidemic. And it always has been. According to Rain, an American citizen 12 years or older is sexually assaulted every 68 seconds. One out of every six American women will be subjected to an attempted or completed rape within her lifetime, as well as one out of every 33 men. And yet, according to estimated statistics by Rain and the Washington Post, less than 6% of perpetrators will ever be arrested, and only 0.7% will ever be convicted. So let me make this very clear. Virtually zero rapists are ever convicted of a crime. But if you have ever met more than six women, you have met a rape survivor. Rape is common. Rape is not rare. And rape is fundamentally misunderstood. There is a terrifying study from the University of North Dakota, in fact, that clarifies this. Though the small sample size should be noted, the pattern it elucidates is clear. 31% of the men surveyed said that they would force a woman to have sex, quote, if no one would ever know and there wouldn't be any consequences. It was only when the researchers specifically replaced the phrase forced sex with the word rape that the number dropped to 13%. As in, 33% of the men surveyed would rape a woman given the chance, but only 13% seemed to understand that forced sex and rape were the same thing. Allow me to repeat myself. Rape is an epidemic. Question the number of the North Dakota study all you like, but the implications are clear. There is an abundance of men who absolutely, 100%, would, beyond a shadow of a doubt, rape a woman if they knew they would never face any consequences. And Yuri, the Russian smuggler who just sold out his ally, stole $40,000 and drugged two people to sell them to Soviet Russia? He most certainly believes right now that there are not going to be any consequences for whatever he chooses to do with Joyce and Murray. Now. As I said, I don't think for a second that the show is actually going to address this, and I don't want them to. It would be irresponsible, especially after everything else that they're trying to handle this season, to take this on. Taking on that kind of a plotline would drag the show into extraordinarily dark, traumatic, triggering territory. Ultimately, it would probably lose the show more than a few fans. It would complicate things, it would upset people, and it would overall be a terrible idea. But for me, it was all I could think about while Joyce was lying on that floor. Truly all I could think about. And the next time I see her, it's probably going to be all I can think about again. I hope something happens to save her. I hope Murray is faking unconsciousness and that he gets Joyce to safety before Yuri is alone with her long enough for something to happen. But it's been, your woman is safe from Enzo to Hopper all season, and I just cannot wrap my mind around how this could realistically end well. And if the plot doesn't explicitly have Joyce saved before she is left alone with Yuri, well, even if the show doesn't go there, I don't know that I'm going to be able to keep myself from the certainty of just what kind of man that I think Yuri is. I need them to do something to save her before there's a gap in time where anything could have happened to her. And that's what that is. But I suppose let's think about happier things for now, shall we? Like Max's visit to her dead brother's grave in light of her rapidly approaching death. Wait, did I say happier? Forget about that. Before Max can get to Billy's grave, Lucas confronts her over her hallucinations. Max is putting on a really strong face, but Lucas just doesn't get it. You know you can talk to me, and why do you keep pushing me away? Those aren't any more helpful than the counselors you need to open up to me. Y'all say that like it's so easy. 
It's the hardest thing in the fucking world. If you've never lived beneath the weight of suicidal ideation, allow me to enlighten you, and obviously this is another separate trigger warning. When you say, you know you can talk to me, ideation will whisper, he's saying that so he can feel like a good person. He doesn't actually care about you. Why would anyone ever care about you? When you say, why do you keep pushing me away? Ideation will whisper back, because I'm worthless and you deserve better than me. And if I show you my shame, you will realize that you actually do hate me. And if I get rejected like that, I may literally die. And when you say, you need to open up to me, ideation whispers, you are not prepared to cope with the weight of what I am carrying. And there's a strong possibility that you're just going to call me crazy. And then I will be in even more pain than I was a minute ago. So just look at the fake smile on my face and leave me alone. These little phrases, you know you can talk to me, don't push me away, open up, they're not helpful. I don't speak for everyone, of course, I never could, no one ever can, but for me, they're just not helpful phrases at all. I'm fine is the knee-jerk reaction, and what it really means is, I can't forget my pain if you keep pointing it out, and it really hurts to see Max going through that here. Am I saying that you should stop trying to show hurt people that you care? No, of course not. I'm saying that showing is different. Showing someone kindness when they're suffering is not a matter of a single conversation. It's about being present, persistent, and consistent. It's a matter of reaching out to your depressed or anxious or traumatized friend even when they seem to be avoiding you, or when they turn down all of your invitations, or when they can't muster the strength to even reply to a text for weeks or months. It's a matter of showing them that you still want to have a relationship with them even when their brain is telling them that no one could possibly ever want that. It's a matter of trying to make it clear that you think they have inherent value even when their ideation is telling them that they are inherently worthless. You don't need to say, please open up. Not with words. Say it with your actions, again and again and again. Say it with invitations to hang out. Say it by not letting the conversation die even if they haven't texted back in a while. Say it by openly appreciating them, their thoughts, their opinions, their presence itself. And then once you've said it, say it again. Now, with all of that said, it's back to the asylum. Robin and Nancy are still chatting with Creel, and he tells them via flashback what happened to his family way back when. Creel, it turns out, had or has combat PTSD. He had been in World War II, and even though it had been 14 years, time does not heal all wounds. He had a wife and two children that he loved, and an inheritance that let him buy the family a fairy tale house, as his daughter put it. But the fairy tale turned into a nightmare. Henry, Creel's son, noticed it first, and I have to wonder if there's anything to that. According to Creel, it started with the appearance of dead animals in the yard, animals that had been mutilated and tortured before their deaths. And to be honest, Creel is appealing to demon mythology here, but when I hear tortured dead animals, I think baby serial killer, which makes me look askance at Creel's son. Based off the rest of the story, I'm barking up the wrong tree with that idea. But I don't know if I buy what Creel is trying to sell me here. I'm not quite convinced here that all the pieces actually add up to a coherent whole. But I'll see if I can't put my finger on what it is that I'm picking up on as I go through this scene. Victor claims that the demon began tormenting his family with waking nightmares, taking pleasure in tormenting them. The wife saw spiders, the daughter would wake up screaming, and Victor himself would hallucinate awful imagery related to regrets he had about the war, wrong calls that he'd made, lives that he'd lost to bad decisions. 
but I find it suspicious that the sun is so out of focus in this segment. We look at what tormented Victor and the wife and the daughter, but not the sun. When Victor's wife is taken by Vecna, we get Victor and the little girl's reaction, but we don't get the sun's. I'm not the only one noticing this, right? This isn't just a really weird authorial decision, right? It took Virginia first, Victor says about his wife, and again, only he and his daughter have reaction shots in regards to his wife's gruesome death. I tried to get the children out to save them, but obviously that didn't work. Victor goes into a hallucination from which he is only spared thanks to music, and when he wakes from his trance, his children both appear to be dead. But why? I'm not sure of the exact nature of Chrissy's relationship with her family, but it's clear that she was suffering. Fred was being crushed by the guilt over the car accident that he survived. Max is struggling with grief and guilt regarding Billy. Victor has PTSD from the war. Virginia and Alice and the little boy, though. How did Vecna get them? Because I, for one, am currently operating under the theory that Vecna thinks he's mercy-killing people who are suffering, which would imply that he can or perhaps will only go after people with some kind of trauma. Virginia, sure, I get that. She's a woman in the 50s, so I'm sure she has some kind of trauma for Vecna to draw on. But what about Alice? How did Vecna get Alice? She was, what, 10, 11, maybe 12? What trauma is it that she's suffering already at such a young age? And what about the boy? How did Vecna get either of these kids, as Victor claims he did? Though I will note that while Alice's body is on screen, the little boy's body is strategically hidden behind a banister here, and when Victor picks him up, his face is pointed away from the screen. According to him, the kid, Henry, had, quote, slipped into a coma and died shortly thereafter. And that does not at all fit Vecna's pattern. So, um, I've gotta ask, is Henry Vecna? Am I being dumb here? Because I feel like Henry is a baby serial killer, and he's probably Vecna, and I did not catch it during my reaction video, but this shit feels hella sus to me right now as I'm re-watching the episode to write this script, and I just... I've got my eye on you, kid. I don't think we're done with him yet. Anyway, the rest of Victor's story involves him, quote, trying to join his family, except that this attempt apparently involved stabbing himself in the eyes, which I don't really get. Why go for the eyes specifically instead of slitting his wrists or slashing his throat? Did he really expect to die from mutilated eyeballs, or is there something else going on here? Now, the more important takeaway from this scene is obvious. Not that Robin and Nancy have caught it quite yet. Viewers should have picked up on it by now, though, so let's talk about it here. Creel has just given us the key to Max's survival. It's music. Of course it's music. Music is dissociative, distracting, but it can also be grounding. Really, music can do for you whatever you need it to. Some songs will make you cry, some will bring you back to your childhood, some will sustain you through a workout, and some will even pump you up into a rage. Music is incredibly powerful to the human psyche, and music is a wonderful tool to have if you're struggling with any kind of mental health problems. That it gets used to save Max is a lovely thought. And the execution of the idea is one of the best things I've ever seen. And we're almost there. I am so close to being able to talk about this lovely, gorgeous, epic scene, and I cannot wait. But first, we have to talk about Billy. Or, more accurately, Max has to talk to Billy. She's written him a letter, and she's reading it to his grave. The show rather masterfully uses this opportunity to explain what's happening in Max's life since season three. 
And I love that she gets to explore the conflicted feelings wrapped up in her mourning. There's a little bit of Spike's I save you every night in my dreams in there, which is lovely. But I'm even more interested in the way that Max points out Billy's act of heroism. He did save Elle and the rest of them, even while she admits that he was an awful brother. She's not quite ready to cope with the fact that he was an awful person, not ready to grapple with the fact that she's mourning a stepbrother she never had every bit as much as she's mourning the one she actually did. She wishes that they could have been friends, or that they could have become friends, and part of the healing process for her is going to have to be admitting that this was an impossibility. Dying was the one good thing that Billy ever did, and what an awful thing to know about your big brother, even if he wasn't biological and didn't want to be called your brother. And that final note, that's the part that really gets me, I think love your shitty little sister. It is so telling that even in this moment, even when she's reaching toward love and compassion and forgiveness, Max is beating herself up. She's Billy's shitty sister, because of course she is. Otherwise, if she were a good sister instead, then she wouldn't be struggling with all of the conflicted feelings that she is. If she were a good sister, she could have saved Billy. If she were a good sister, she would have been his best friend. If she were a good sister, she would have forgiven him completely after his death. If she were a good sister, there wouldn't be a part of her, way deep down inside herself, that knows she really was a tiny bit relieved when Billy died. And it's all this grief and guilt and pain that lets Vecna in, I'm sure of that. Because we go from Max reading her letter to Billy and into a nightmare. Dacca Montgomery is back, and the ghost that lives inside Max's mind feeds her all her worst fears and self-loathing. I've said it before, and I'll say it again, I don't think a word of this comes from Vecna himself. I think Vecna is harnessing Max's own thoughts against her. He's hearing them, he's taking them, and he's putting them in Billy's mouth so that they can most effectively be used to push her to the edge. No one, after all, is so perfectly equipped to destroy us as ourselves. That Max, through Billy, explicitly admits that she wishes she were dead, that really hurts. I'm impressed they had the nerve to textualize that subtext. But when Billy disappears, Vecna is in his place and Max runs for it. How she manages this is a bit up in the air, it's a plot contrivance, I would wager, but perhaps you can headcanon it as her being more equipped to deal with Vecna's bullshit because she dealt with the Upside Down before. In any case, Steve and Dustin and Lucas are freaking out in the real world because Max has gone full, soon-to-be pretzel comatose. And so Dustin runs to the walkie-talkie to demand answers from Robin and Nancy. Because if they don't have them by now, then it is too late. Robin and Nancy, though, their time has run out in a different sense. They've wrapped up with Creel, but they've been caught in their lie. The Penhurst director wants them arrested, and to be honest, I'm not sure what crime he thinks they've committed here. But the girls run for it, and they get away, and they make it to the car just in time to make an escape and to let Dustin know what it is that they've learned. And while Max runs from Vecna in her mind's eye, the gang scrambles to find her favorite song. It is, of course, Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill, and it does what it needs to do but it's almost not enough. By the time the headphones have made it onto her ears, Max has already gone from the frying pan into the fire. She has walked through the foggy graveyard, past the enormous crumbling headstone with a name that looks suspiciously like Byers, and traveled into Vecna's red-tinted lair. It's quite the place. So, um, 
Before we get into what's coming up for Max, let's take a look at what Vecna has going on here, shall we? It's all very dreamlike in a very particular fashion. If I were to compare it to anything, there is one property that springs immediately to mind. This place, Vecna's Lair, reminds me very strongly of the Fade from Dragon Age. If you're not familiar with that franchise, I'm not going to offer a huge explanation of what I mean, but I will share a little bit. In that fantasy series, there is another world, a world of spirits and demons and magic called the Fade. And the Fade is inherently tied to dreams. Dreamers, in fact, affect the Fade. It's a physical place that can be entered magically, yes, but it is more often a place that you enter psychologically. It's not a place contained within your mind, but it is a place your mind can access, a place your mind can affect, especially if you're a mage. I would compare it regretfully to the literal interpretation of Jung's collective unconsciousness. Now, I hate, I despise the literal interpretation of the collective unconsciousness. If you don't know what that is, allow me to explain. Essentially, the collective unconscious, as proposed by Carl Jung, was the notion of a mental commonality shared by all humans. The instincts, the archetypes, the inherent presuppositions passed down to us from our ancestors. Jung considered it to be in Freud's notion of archaic remnants, and I would argue that both can be tied into epigenetics or thinking radically gut microbiomes, perhaps. But the idea of the collective unconscious shows up less these days in scientific works and more in pseudoscientific and fantastical works. The term collective unconsciousness has been literalized since Young's days. People who bring it up these days tend to talk about it as if it is some metaphysical but extant thing outside of any human mind or genome, something that clairvoyants or psychics or sensitives, or whatever you want to call them, can access. It's big in occult circles. I've heard it talked about by people who are into general neo-paganism and chaos magic. At its absolute worst, it's the idea of plucking knowledge from the ether magically. At its best, I would say, or at least at its most tolerable though, the collective unconscious literalized is the fade. A dream world. A mindscape. It's fictional, but fun, as opposed to woo. And now that we're seeing Vecna's world, now that we're seeing Vecna's ability, I'm starting to wonder about the upside down. Earlier in this episode, Dustin reminds us all that we do not know the origins of this strange and sinister realm. L did not create it, we already knew that. But how old is it? Where did it come from? What actually is it? If this lair of Vecna's is inside it, if Vecna is using it to look into the minds of the people of Hawkins, see their darkest thoughts, and track them down for merciful slaughter, then perhaps the Upside Down was just essentially the fade all along. Perhaps the Upside Down is the literalized collective unconsciousness. I don't think I'll hate that outright, but I'm not yet sure quite how I feel about that if it turns out to be true. The rest of this episode, though, I know how the fuck I feel about the rest of this. This is lovely. This is gorgeous. Vecna is turning out to be a better villain than I was expecting, and his vague motivations are interesting, and his world is a disgusting nightmare. The CGI here isn't perfect, but it's far from terrible. Impressive by TV standards, really. And the second that Kate Bush starts up, this shit turns into one of my favorite things literally ever. I kinda need Vecna to back up some from this little girl's face, but Max essentially defeats Vecna via music video, and it feels like she kicked his ass with a goddamn AMV, and I might just explode from how it hits this lovely balance of precious and epic. The song choice is amazing, the whole thing is cinematic as fuck, Sadie Sink acts her ass off, and at the risk of getting too personal, when I was about her age and my depression was at its absolute worst, this is exactly the kind of shit that I was visualizing during bouts of maladaptive daydreaming. Granted, I was listening to the Within Temptation cover of this song, and more usually to Within Temptation's The Howling, but this... 
This almost hurts from how perfect it is. This feels like the Duffer Brothers reached into my brain and plucked out something very personal to me, and then put it on the screen and actually did it justice. And I think that sometime in my near future, I'm gonna sit down, have something to drink, and have a good bittersweet cry over this scene. If I had seen this when I was about 17, I really don't know if I could have handled it. I'm honestly shocked I'm not sobbing right now. But Max, this little survivor, she did it. She made it out. She made it back to reality. I will be very disappointed if going forward she's treated as if she is healed, but that is a problem for another day. Right now, she's alive, she's safe, and she's loved. Max is still here. But so is Vecna. So... I'm going to take some more time before I decide whether or not this is my favorite episode of the whole show. It genuinely might be. Um, like I said before, uh, Stranger Things Season 3 is my favorite season of Stranger Things, but this season could possibly give it a run for its money. If not, Season 3 could remain my favorite season and this could become my favorite episode. Who knows? In any case, like I said, this was phenomenal. I adored this, and I'm looking forward to being able to sit down and watch some other reactors crying over this, because I think that'll be one of the ways I might be able to tap into my emotions for this. It was just so gorgeous. It was epic. It was perfect. It's everything. Truly, it feels like it was plucked right out of my own sick psyche at its absolute sickest, and in a good way instead of a bad one. And I just, I, I hardly know how to express myself about this. I adore this. I'm going to go back and watch this again and again. It really does feel like a, a music video from like early YouTube, like anime fans putting, I don't know, Disturbed or Evanescence or I don't know, Three Days Grace over something, trying to make it as epic as possible. And that they did it with Kate Bush is just, it's great. And I don't know how to contain myself right now. So as I record this, I am going to be sitting down tomorrow morning to watch the next episode, and I don't know how we come down from this high, but I'm looking forward to finding out what happens next in this season. I really can't wait to see how all of this wraps up. I am, I have been getting slowly more optimistic over the course of the past few episodes, and right now, I, again, I'm at a high. I am feeling very good about this. I am feeling very optimistic, and I am hoping very much that the rest of the season is not going to disappoint, or at the very least that the rest of these first seven episodes are not going to disappoint. So, with all of that said, I'm going to be back next week with my coverage of the next episode, and if you are interested in joining me for that, I would be very much appreciative. Please keep listening. I am enjoying doing this. I hope you are enjoying listening to this. There are several different Patreon tiers with different types of perks that you may be interested in, or feel free to let me know about what you might be interested in seeing on the Patreon in the future alternately talk about the show on social media, leave a rating or a review, all of that jazz. Other than that, thank you so much for listening. I hope you will join me again next time, and I really hope that this season turns out to be as awesome and epic as this last episode implied. The second Enzo showed up on the screen, scream, scream,